I've decided <laughs> since doing this, uh, since doing the notes for this episode, I am 100% a Megadeth girl. Ooh. Not a Metallica girl. Ooh. Not a Metallica Shots girl. Shots fired. I am here shooting them bullets. Sweating bullets. Sweating bullets. <laughs> no. They are, though. They're sweating bullets. Yeah, they are. Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> <laughs> Your weekly music podcast bringing you sweet treats of delight and wonder yes. from the world of Megadeth this week. I am so excited to talk about Megadeth. This this episode is going to take the cake. I think it's going to be the longest episode. Oh, yeah. I definitely have the most notes of any episode. I tried real hard not to make this a two-parter. Although I think Dave deserves it. However, it's just going to be an extra long episode of it's, Rock It's Andy. just one of those things like, guys, we, we plan our shit out pretty far in advance. So sometimes it's like, oh, how do we juggle everything? Yeah. We're just going to do a really long episode instead. Yeah. But then sometimes, you know, it's Sunday. We record on Mondays. Yeah. And it's Sunday evening. And you're trying real hard to finish up your notes. And you're like... I have 10 pages of notes. I don't know what to do. We'll figure it out. It's fine. Also, we're your hosts. I'm Maggie. <laughs> I'm Ashley. And as you can tell, we're very well prepared. We're just very excited about this episode. I'm so excited. Like, I've had the hype all day today. I feel like this is this is an episode that we have been wanting to do since we started. Yeah. And we, we're just now getting around to it. And... It's, well, I it's feel a long like, time coming. Regardless of whether you're a Metallica fan or a Megadeth fan, I think Me- Metallica kind of has to come first because I think it gives you a better understanding of Megadeth and where Dave Mustaine's coming from. Yeah, and it gives you a, a pretty good overview of Dave's personality oh. throughout most of his life. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, we're pretty much just elaborating on that. Yeah. So... And Dave's kind of fascinating. I think, especially in comparison to the rest of Metallica. Yeah, I would say so. I think he has the most multifaceted personality to a point where he might have multiple personalities. I mean, he might. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I'm all right with that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, sweating bullets, prime example. <laughs> and he knows it. He knows it. He's proud He's of it. well aware. He is. But good for him. And uh, to get us kicking off on this long night of recording, we are drinking from Unibrow. Unibrew. Unibrew. <laughs> Unibrow. <laughs> Jesus. You can call it Unibrow. Some people do. Unibrow. Uh, I don't know, I don't know how they say it in Montreal. In Montreal. Oh my God, it's Montreal. Yeah. Oh, so we can definitely fuck this up. Yes. A tout le monde. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is the A name of the beer. A toot the moon. A toot the moon. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what I'm calling it's it. Tootin' to the moon. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> we're already. We are just. We're not even drunk. We're just. I'm we're just drunk so on excitement. Legitimately drunk on excitement. Yes, it is a Belgian style Sisson ale. And it is the Megadeth beer. And it's actually really good. Yeah, I actually really like it. It's very agreeable. And it's nice, smooth, easy going. I mean, it's only 4.5, so how are you going to fuck that up? And Unibrew, they put out a lot of really good beers. And it's pretty awesome, I think, that Dave... I don't know who contacted who to do this beer, but 
I think it's pretty cool that Dave chose to make a Megadeth beer with Unibrew. And of all the, of, like, it's not, it's not like he's doing a beer with Budweiser or some shit. Oh, you know? You mean like Metallica? I'm I wasn't sure, gonna say it, but I'm pretty sure Exit Light is distributed by Budweiser. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Please feel free I it's, to. It's I had Enter a, Night. I had a Enter Night. Enter Night. Whatever. It's not great. I, who gives a I shit? I had like really? half a can, it's and awful. I was like, you know, this tastes like Heineken. The this novelty is, garbage. is not good enough for this. Not worth it. Not worth it. Not at all. Like I remember, we got that. Somebody gave it to us, and they were like, "Here, we don't want to drink this anymore. You take it." We're like, "All right, cool." So we took a few sips, and we're like, "We don't mm, want to drink this anymore drink this either." It was a little warm too. That doesn't. That did not do it any favors. Oh no, because that made it even more like piss. See, what we wish we could have gotten though was Dave Mustaine's wine. Wines. Holy fuck, I want to get those wines so bad. Yeah, in case you didn't know, Dave Mustaine has Mustaine Vineyards now. Oh my god, can we visit there? And he's got a rosé called She-Wolf, and I want to fucking get it so bad, even though I hate rosé. Same, same. And I then just want to be able time, to say. <laughs> I just want to like get really drunk and be like, there's a She-Wolf in my bottle. Ow. <laughs> And he'll be like, that's not the right song. <laughs> You're like, shut up, Dave. Go I tell it to Reader's Digest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Sincerely, so fucking hyped for just all of this. It's going to be so ridiculous. Oh, and I'm taking you on a fucking roller coaster this Ooh, episode. We're not just buckling up. We're just getting like, you fucking strapped You need to buckle up, strap in. yourself in, put the thing over your head what lock it down i don't know harness yeah harness over you you're fucking ready to go get your if life you, preserver <laughs> get everything you were going on the fucking comet right now oh the comet sucks i, love I the hate comet. the comet I love no what that's the wooden roller coaster right yeah yeah no i don't do wooden roller coasters oh, i'm sorry I, I didn't know you were like i have a fragile neck classist about your roller coasters i am if I don't have the harness, I can't do it. I guess that's fair. I get jerked around too much. Fine, we're going hurts. on the screaming demon. The steaming demon? What is he doing? Steaming demon sounds way different. That's not a roller coaster, Maggie. <laughs> all right, all right. And on that note, let's get started. Let's go. Let's get into it. And we talked about the beer. We introduced ourselves. Let's uh, let's talk about. Let's talk me. We can talk more about the Steven Demon if you want. <laughs> We're going to give you guys that good, good content that you're so looking for in their podcasts. You're welcome. I mean, this is what I look for. <laughs> roller coasters that you've never... Local upstate roller coasters that you've never heard of by and, Ashley and, and Maggie. never want to get on. <laughs> None of it's called the Steven Demon. <laughs> Anyway, can we talk about... Yes, Meg- yes, yes, please. Do it. Let's go. Uh, all right, I'm just going to drink my beer and sit back. And it's all okay, you. Okay. Megadeth is not, and will never be for the faint of heart. This powerhouse metal band has been shredding our faces off since 1983, and its creator, Dave Mustaine, is sometimes more well-known for his massive drug habit and feud with Metallica than his own music. But there's a whole lot more to his story than we may think. Hmm. Born in La Mesa, California on September 13th, 1961, David Scott Mustaine had a pretty rough childhood, as does everybody we talk about. Yep. 
He was the youngest of four children, and all three of his older siblings were girls, so you would think he'd be doted on. Yeah. Probably. But, but that wasn't the case. You think they, like, they'd have like little sleepovers and do his hair? Well, I mean... He, he, had, had, lu- he has luxuriously long poodle hair. Our poodle hair. Poodle hair mustaine Poodle is hair mustaine. Very, very special place in my heart for that man's hair. Poodle hair? <laughs> All right. I guess. All right. Um, Hypoallergenic. <laughs> his father, John Mustaine, was a full-time banker and a big-time asshole. Ooh. He had a bad alcohol problem and took his anger out mostly on Dave. Dave was still very young, but that didn't stop his father from beating him. In one incident, his father essentially pulled a very young Dave down the driveway by his ear with a pair of pliers. What the fuck? Yeah. Jesus, what the f- Oh my god, he didn't rip his ear off? I don't know. Huh? I assume not. Huh? He still has two intact ears, as far as I know. Horrifying. Dave's mom, Emily, fairly quickly tried to get her family out of this terrible situation. She divorced John in 1965 when Dave was only four years old and got her kids the fuck out of there. But John wouldn't stay away. Most of Dave's young childhood was spent running from his dad, who inevitably found Emily and the children no matter where they went. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what the fuck is wrong with your life, brah? Like, they, get over it. Seriously, she divorced Live in the you. now. Live in the now. Fuck. Eventually, Dave, his mom, and his sisters settled down in California to build a new life safely away from John. But that didn't mean everything was peachy. By the time Dave was seven, his mother had converted the family to Jehovah's Witnesses. Not to malign the Jehovah's Witness community, but it's basically a doomsday cult. Kinda. And its followers are pretty hardcore. All tea, no shade. Yeah. Being the only kid in class that was a witness didn't help young Dave make any friends. He didn't celebrate birthdays or holidays, couldn't have friends over that weren't also witnesses, and couldn't even stand for the Pledge of Allegiance in class. Yep. I actually went to elementary school with a Jehovah's Witness. She was a very sweet girl. I considered her my friend, but I was always like, when she was just like, oh no, we don't do birthdays. Oh, I can't do Valentine's Day. And I was like, what? I'm, this is crazy. But I also grew up really strict Roman Catholic. So, so we, you, you felt you had a simpatico. Yeah, like we love Jesus. Jesus is queer. Jesus, Jesus was just is so right with us. But he was. <laughs> so one time she gave me a children's Jehovah's Witness Bible. Oh, boy. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, whatever. I thought she was being really sweet. My mother found it. And whoo, boy. <laughs> was she like, Margaret, you can't read this. This is terrible. This isn't. This I mean, isn't our religion. Your mom wasn't wrong. Well, your mom was like, up, mom? Your mom was wrong about a lot of things, but she wasn't wrong about that. But she was also wrong because, like, Catholics. Yeah. Can we like? Can we stop for a it's second? A little Catholics? bit hypocritical of her. Really? <laughs> Who's being the real Christian right now, yeah. mom? Yeah. Um, I have a very similar story, but I worked with a Jehovah's Witness, and she was very strict about it. She, um. Like, didn't go to college or anything. Instead, wow. she decided to become, like, a minister in the ch- in their Jehovah's Witness I church. she did not know women could become ministers. Apparently, they can. Oh, like, right. Or whatever it is. She was, like, she wanted to be a church leader of some kind, whatever they allow women to do. All right. So, she was studying to be that. She would tell me all the time, you know, they don't celebrate holidays or birthdays or anything like that. But... <laughs> One year, she asked me (laughs) for her birthday. She actually wanted to do something for her birthday. So we ended up going to the movies to see the Jackass movie. (laughs) And this was like her rebellion. 
And it was so sweet, but at the same time, I was like, you poor girl. Right? Like, ooh, seeing a jackass movie? Yeah. Like, this she really wanted gonna, to see the jackass This is movie. you going wild? Yeah. And I mean, I guess it was. It was. Wow. So, Dave Mustaine had yeah. the luxury of being raised in that. Yeah. I mean, Great. I know abuse and trauma can do things to you, but, all right, choices. Yeah, these are these are your choices. So, because of his Jehovah's Witness thing, kids thought he was pretty weird. Not helping was the fact that he was a ginger. Yeah. He, of course, got picked on for that, so he spent most of his childhood friendless. Oh. But you know what? He has fucking beautiful hair. He does have beautiful hair. I'm fine with it. Like a lot of lonely children, Dave turned to music to make himself feel better and to also drown out his sister's piano playing. (laughs) Apparently, she was so bad at it that Dave started playing guitar just so he didn't have to listen to her. Something of a feud seemed to ensue, and his one sister, Debbie, got so fed up with his terrible guitar playing that she smashed his acoustic (gasps) guitar over his head. Oh, no! Oh, no! This particular guitar was given to him by his mother, who bestowed the instrument upon him in 1969 when he was eight. Back in those days, he played more singer-songwriter jams like Cat Stevens and Elton John, a far cry from the thrash metal he'd become known for. Picture, like, little baby David Stade, like, singing some Cat fucking Stevens. Some father and son. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) It's so cute, though. It's really cute. His early musical career was temporarily halted now that his guitar was destroyed, so he set his sights on Little League instead. But it became apparent that little Dave had a bit of an anger problem. No. Not Dave Mustaine. I mean, I can't blame him right now, though. Right. But also, keep it to yourself. Yeah. He wouldn't play the game right at all and made up his own rules. The first rule was... If someone came up to the plate he was defending, whether he had a ball and could strike them out or not, he railroaded them. <laughs> Holy shit. Parents of other kids on the league hated little Dave and kind of rightfully so. He was mean and kind of a bully. Oh my God. All I can picture, he's the kid from Problem Child. He kind of is. He's the fucking kid from he's Problem Child. He's that little Child. piece of shit. He's that little piece of shit. Maybe, maybe they made Problem Child based on him. Oh my God. Who was the guy in that? John Ritter? Mm-hmm. Is that who that is? Oh my God. Yes, it was. May he rip a in peace. In peace. Ripperoni in peace. <laughs> in September 1975, Dave was uprooted again when his mother moved the family to Stanton, California. Dave was uprooted again when his mother moved the family to Stanton, California to live with Dave's oldest sister, Suzanne, and her husband, Bob. By now, Dave had graduated from acoustic ballads to something a bit harder, like think first wave uh, British heavy metal. Stuff like Led Zeppelin, stuff like that. Then one day, he brought home the Judas Priest album, Sad Wings of Destiny. Hell yeah. Deeply religious Bob hated it and told as much to Dave. When Dave mouthed off at him in response, Bob assaulted him. What? Yeah. Because Bob's a dick. I assume at this point, Dave's probably like 16-ish. He's 15. 15? Okay. He joined Metallica around probably like 17, 18, I think. Um, He was like 19, I believe. Huh. Time's a social construct. Continue. Actually, I think he was older than that. He was around 21. Really? Yeah. Oh. All right. Um, We'll get to that a little bit. Um, <laughs> so that was it for Dave. He had enough and decided to leave home and live on his own. He was only 15, but he was going to make it work. 
Good for him, I think. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. He's, look, he's <laughs> this not. This is what we're going to be doing this whole episode. It's good for him. Maybe? I uh, I don't, maybe <laughs> not. I don't like, know. Am I okay with this? It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, well, this ain't working. So you got to do something different. But is what he is doing that's different good? better? Better? I don't know. Is it? We'll find out. <laughs> so he got an apartment in LA. I don't know how the fuck you get your own apartment when you're 15. He had to the have 70s, lied. The 70s were different. I 100, I 100% believe that like if you want to do shit in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you, you could. You could do it. You know, people are like still dropping a ton of acid and then starting to do cocaine. Like nobody gives a shit about anything right now. True. Like you still have people reeling from the summer of love and just it, shit's weird. Shit's weird up until like the mid 90s when people like kind of like woke back up and they're like, oh, Oh, wait, we have rules. Oh, shit. Sorry. Oh, right. And right. then Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Reagan. He was it's early Reagan. 80s, but still. That's what I mean. Like, Reagan was like the back to the conservative ethics. Yeah. That America so longed for. It's like now, you know, people are doing the same thing because we had eight years of Obama and it was great. So now they I want mean, to it ruin was, it. Guys, it was fine <laughs> at best, but it's- like... It was getting better. No, it was getting better. You know, we're not a political podcast. We're talking about Dave Mustaine. Sorry. Yes, Dave Mustaine. Anyway, (laughs) he got in his apartment in LA and started selling drugs as a way to make money. Yeah. Because he was only 15, it's not like he could go get any old job. (laughs) But now he had bills to pay and he had to make cash somehow. I don't know. You could, I feel like 15, you could probably get like a fast food job and work like limited hours. I, I know in New York, if you're, like, 14, you can work on a farm. And once you're 15, you can work, like, in retail stores and stuff like yeah. that. But I don't know about California. But he wanted to make that good, good money. Yeah. And you do that by selling drugs. All right. Good for him. But also, I he think. wanted the drugs. Oh so <laughs> what better way to yeah. get drugs and make yeah. money All right. than to sell it? All right. He's not wrong. But it was a pretty good gig. He started dealing to a girl that worked at a record store, and she would come to his house every afternoon. They'd get a little busy. Yeah, Dave, get it! (laughs) Then she would pay him for the drugs in albums from new wave British metal bands like Iron Maiden, Diamond Head, and Motorhead. That's fucking rad. These bands became- That's a great fucking exchange. Right? You get to have sex with a cute girl, and then she gives you music and records. And, like, you just give her some pot. Yeah. That's a pretty great arrangement. Yeah. This all sounds great. Even in my mid-30s, I'm still agreeing with this. Yeah. This was a good choice. Yes. (laughs) These bands became huge influences on Dave and piqued his interest in the occult. Considering his strict religious upbringing, any band that was the complete antithesis of it was especially intriguing. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't just the music that influenced Dave to pick up the guitar again. He went to a lot of shows in L.A. and he understood how the scene worked. If you're in a rock band, you have all the women, booze and drugs you could ever ask for. After seeing all these women fawning over guitarists and the party lifestyles they led, he was determined to start a band. Good for him. He sees what he wants. He works for it. Yeah. Before he could even start a band, the demons that would follow Dave throughout his entire life started to emerge. He was a full-fledged party boy by the time he was 16, drinking heavily and doing any drug that was put in front of him. Ooh, okay. Addiction was something he inherited from his alcoholic father, who, in 1978, Dave had tracked down and made plans to meet with after years of running from him. Okay. But they were not able to meet. 
because two days after reconnecting, John Mustaine suffered a major aneurysm and passed away. Which fucking Ooh. sucks. Literally two days after you reconnect with your estranged Ooh. father. Oh, 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 geez. Yeah. Oh, geez, Louise. Okay. Dave heard the news from his sister and rushed to the hospital to be with his dad. Unfortunately, Dave had been in the middle of a drinking binge when Suzanne called him. But he hopped on a moped. Oh, no. And drunkenly raced to the hospital anyway swerving recklessly and running red lights while still drinking a fifth of whiskey he had in his pocket. I mean, like, you could stop drinking for 20 minutes to get to the hospital. literally 20 minutes. Like, look at it as a reward. Like, I'm not going to drink this until I park my moped at the hospital and then I get a swig because good for me. And I know this is an an inappropriate time to conjure up this image, but just imagine a 16-year-old Dave Mustaine on a moped, sw- taking swigs from a bottle of whiskey and swerving all over the world. <laughs> do you think? Do you think he's still wearing a helmet? No, he's not wearing it. Uh, you cannot contain that hair. That's true. He's <laughs> not wearing a helmet. You know it. His hair is wearing a helmet, but his head is not. <laughs> if he ever got into a car accident on that moped without a helmet, his head would just be a soft pillow. To cradle his oh, head as it hits he the sidewalk. Need a helmet. He doesn't I see need what you're a helmet. saying. All right. But it was too late. By the time he got to the hospital, John had passed away. Upon seeing his condition when he got to the hospital, Suzanne told Dave that he was going to end up just like their father. Oh, I mean. And she wasn't wrong. She's not. And like, it's one of those things where you're like, ooh, that's harsh, but also wake up call. Yeah. And this was when he was 16, mind you. Yeah. And I'm only on page two of my notes. Guys, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. So, yeah, she wasn't wrong. And their father's death, if anything, sped up Dave's addictions. Oh, yeah. Because of course they do. You have two choices here. You can stop drinking or you can just keep on rolling. Or you can put the pedal to the metal and ramp it up to 11 and all those other cliche things. Guys, guess guess which one he did. Just guess. (laughs) Guess which one. You don't have to tell us. We know which one. The temptation of free booze and drugs musicians got just for being musicians was too tempting, and now he was determined to start a band and live that party lifestyle. It's kind of like the reason I do uh, trivia. Yeah. <laughs> free beer. Free beer. That's why, that's, why you, that's why you host trivia. And the adulation of the masses yeah. at trivia. Your adoring fans. My adoring fans <laughs> and free beer. <laughs> It's the same thing. And you know what? If some of these breweries would send us some free beer, that's why we would be doing this podcast. Free booze and adoration yeah. of everybody. Yeah. We've got like adoration of like at least what? Like Five 20 people? people? Oh, oh, I think we've got like 20, fa- 20 like under- real fans. I underestimate a lot. I do too. I'm a negative But I'm, I'm, I'm starting to be better about our self-esteem. And I think we've got at least 20. Our self-esteem. I don't know. The podcast's <laughs> self-esteem. We're now the Borg. <laughs> The first group Dave started was a very short-lived speed metal band called Panic in 1981. He recruited some friends from L.A. to fill out the rest of the outfit, but tragedy ended the band almost as soon as it began. After playing only their second show in Huntington Beach, Panic's drummer Mike Leftwich and their sound man were killed in a car accident. Oh, gosh. Both men were intoxicated, and Dave told them not to drive home, but they did anyway. I mean, Dave, do you really get to tell people they don't think they shouldn't drive when they're intoxicated? From what I understand, Dave tells people a lot of things that they shouldn't do, that they do anyway, and it ends up badly, and then he's kind of like, well, I told you so, and I think 
that's a little bit fabricated, but mm, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Leftwich fell asleep in the backseat of the car while the sound guy drove, but he lost control of the vehicle and crashed into a traffic control box. The sound guy was able to get out of the car, but died very soon after because he'd actually broken his neck. Oh, <gasps> Mike! What? Mike was trapped in the car and burned alive. Oh my god! Yeah, That's fucking crazy. Fucking so brutal. Oh my god! <laughs> Yikes on bikes! That's <laughs> fucking terrifying. Yeah, that's pretty fucking horrible. <gasps> and the band couldn't survive such a tragic event. No, obviously. Nope. I'd be done. I'd be like, you know what? I need Jesus. <laughs> you know what? I'm going the way of SLC Punk. I'm going to just be fucking straight and then infiltrate from the inside because I can't handle this anymore. Yes. Yeah. Panic fell apart soon after. And to add to an already horrible situation, Panic's former guitarist, Tom Quek, also died in a car accident the same year. The fuck? And even though Panic tried to continue, Dave set his eyes on bigger and better things. Also, like, maybe stop hanging out with people that died. Oh, God, he's not gonna... No, he's not gonna. Oh, God. He's not gonna. And this, this is what it's like when worlds collide. This point in time is when worlds collide. Are you ready to go? Because I'm ready to go. What you gonna do? Baby. (laughs) Baby. L.A. had its own classified newspaper called The Recycler. Yeah. And in it, lots of bands like to advertise for auditions. A little-known musician by the name of Lars Ulrich published an ad in The Recycler looking for a lead guitarist for his band Metallica, and Dave decided to respond. He went into the audition fully expecting to actually audition, but that's not what happened. (laughs) He was in a back room warming up, wailing on his guitar, waiting for James Hetfield and Lars to call him in, but they didn't. He yelled, well, am I going to audition or what? And they responded with a, nope, no need. You got the job. (laughs) You got the job. They did finger snaps and everything. You got the job. (laughs) I'm not going to go into all of the craziness that happened with Dave while he was in Metallica. If you want those stories, listen to our Metallica Part 1 episode, episode 19. And I'm just going to sum it all up by saying these guys were debaucherous and unruly to a ridiculous degree. Oh, yeah. All of them were. But they they are, they were more of an alcohol band than a drug band. Yes. There's like... Hints of drugs here and there, but they they love their fucking yeah. But Dave, Brow. Dave did a lot of drugs. Yeah, and I think that's why he couldn't hang with them too. Yeah, I mean they all drank a lot, and he did a lot of drugs. But Dave did more than anyone else in Metallica, and there's a problem with that because Dave is not a happy drunk. Mm. He's a mean drunk, mm. and when you have a mean drunk on your hands, that's drunk all the time, then you're going to have problems. And Dave was a huge problem for Metallica. Right. As far as I can tell, there wasn't one particular incident that got Dave fired from Metallica. It was a culmination of all the drugs, alcohol, and out-of-control antics that made James Lars and Cliff Burton decide Dave couldn't hang anymore. Yep. So on April 11th, 1983, the band kicked him out. They were already in Rochester, New York to record Metallica's debut album, Kill 'Em All. So they got him a one-way bus ticket back to L.A. and said, see ya. Deuces. May. Because, you know, there's levels of drunk. Yeah. And, like, like you always want to be, number one, happy drunk. 
And I would say, like, nine times out of ten, we're happy drunks. Like, yeah, we're good. We're like, yeah, all right. There's that, like, 0.01% of the time when I'm a really sad and depressed drunk. Same. Same. Like, once in a while, like, we can get a little sad. I've never been a mean drunk. Right. And that's the thing. So you got level one, which is happy. Level two is sad. And I feel like sometimes happy can turn into sad. Yeah. Because, like, maybe you just go a little too far. And also, there are... There are many times when you're happy drunk and you're you're feeling that connection with the person you're hanging out yeah, right? with and then you start crying because you love each other so right. much and you just want them to be happy. So I wouldn't even say that that's like that's like a weird like that's just like beautiful drunk where you're like everything's just amazing and I'm just like I've hit but Nirvana. I'm happy crying. I'm happy, I'm happy crying, crying for you. This is great. We're such good friends. Like, we were all so rooting good. for you. <laughs> but then there's level three, which is angry drunk, which. Most people who are at level three start there and never leave there. Yeah. Once in a blue moon, level three can turn into a extreme level two. Yeah. But like most of the time, like level three mean drunk, woof. If you're if you're a mean drunk, you're just a mean drunk. And like everyone every, gets like one or two nights. Like a hot second you're a happy drunk, but then you really take a deep dive. Yeah. Pretty soon after that. So like here's the thing. If you're a mean drunk, I would say, uh, don't do it. Nobody likes you. If you're a mean drunk, be drunk at home. Yep. Um, be mean to yourself. If you go to a party, just smoke some pot. Yeah. There you go. You don't have to drink. No. Yeah. So Dave was obviously fuming over this. And on the long bus ride home, he penned some lyrics to the song Set the World Afire that would eventually appear on Megadeth's 1988 album, So Far So Good, So What? It's also worth noting here that even though Dave didn't contribute to the recording of Kill Them All, Kill Them All, excuse me. Kill Them All. Kill, kill Them All. <laughs> he did co-write four songs that appeared on the album, as well as two songs that appeared on Metallica's second album, Ride the Lightning. Yep. After Dave got back to L.A., he was more determined than ever to start a new band, one that would be bigger and better than the last one that unceremoniously kicked him out. But first, he needed to find a job and somewhere to live. He ended up moving back in with his mom and got a te- got a job as a telemarketer. Ooh. His first and only real job ever that wasn't dealing drugs or playing music. All right. He only worked the telemarketing job long enough to pay for an apartment in Hollywood. In April 1983, he recruited two guys he had worked with to start a band called Fallen Angels. But the guys just didn't mesh well, and the band split shortly after forming. This set things up for the most fortuitous meeting in Dave's career. It just so happened that a scrappy 18-year-old named David Ellison was mo- was living in the apartment directly below Dave's. And for simplicity's sake, from here on out, I'll be f- referring to Dave Mustaine as Dave. Yep. And David Ellison as David. All right. Got it? That's the difference. There you go. If you get confused. It's your own fault. Rewind back to about a half an hour in. (laughs) David was a Midwestern boy born on November 12th, 1964 and raised on a farm in Jackson, Minnesota. He had a surprisingly similar upbringing to Dave in the sense that they were both born into Lutheran families. Dave's family eventually went Jehovah's Witness, but David's family stayed devoutly Lutheran. All right. When David was 13, he saw Kiss live in concert, and that was when he realized he wanted to be a musician. Kiss were larger than life and hugely popular, and that was very intriguing to a teenage David. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he got into the same metal bands Dave did, absorbing every riff and occult reference, determined to create the same kind of music someday. 
He learned how to play bass and started a band when he was 13 or 14 years old, playing for his neighbors and his friends. And his mom would make lemonade for everyone. Oh, that's real sweet. It was so Midwestern. It, it was, was the most like, picturesque. Fucking bar fun. Fucking it. Midwestern. Disgusting. Leave it to David Ellison TV show life. His family is so from Minnesota. Don't I, channel. She says that. <laughs> Like, Stop I saw it. there was a clip of her um talking about when Dave called her up from LA and was telling her he was in a band and he told her the name of it was Megadeth and her reaction was like, Oh, okay, oh Megadeth, here we go. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, it's oh delightfully Midwestern. I love it. But David had his eyes set on bigger things, and only a few years later, on June first, nineteen eighty three, he moved into his new Hollywood apartment. One, fa- <laughs> One fateful morning, he decided to play along with Van Halen's Running with the Devil. The bass line, as you know, is mm. quite repetitive. It's it literally just burnt, 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 burnt. But it's, burnt. it's that, th- you need it. You need that thick, yeah. heavy yeah. bass. Yeah. But if you're just playing along with it, with your bass, it's cranked as up, fuck. It's just burnt, burnt. Unless you're burnt. just really angry and you need to just keep plucking that same string because you're like, I need to fucking rage and this is how I'm raging. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. It kind of feels good, actually. Yeah. Dave, however, directly upstairs and very hungover, oh was God! not having it. Yes. <laughs> After stomping on the floor and screaming didn't get David to stop, he found a flower pot and launched it out the window, smashing to pieces as it hit David's air conditioner. Oh. <gasps> Instead of scaring his neighbors away for good, Dave's antics only intrigued them. Later that day, David and his roommate Greg Handovit knocked on Dave's door and asked their surly neighbor where they could buy cigarettes. Dave, wine in hand, replied at the corner store and slammed the door in their faces. Just this angry, hungover, so drunk, snarling. ginger, poodle hair, old man at 21. <laughs> Already seen some things. He has seen a lot of things. (laughs) My God. They knocked again, this time asking if the 21-year-old Dave could buy them some beer. To that, he said, okay, now you're talking. And brought brought (laughs) David and Greg to the corner liquor store to buy the kids a rack of (laughs) Heinies. On the way there and back, Dave regaled the teenagers with mostly resentful stories of his short stint in Metallica. Yeah. Oh, my God. Dave was that fucking friend who couldn't stop talking about his ex. Yes. And how he burned him so bad. He's going to get him back. Oh, my God. I'm going to show him. I'm going to fucking show him. I am going to clean myself up. (laughs) I am going to lose weight. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to get a haircut. I am going to get the best job and I'm going to get a whole new wardrobe. And he is going to regret the day he left me. I'm going to make myself a match.com account. He's going to look at my Facebook and be like, oh, my God, I made a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Dave Mustaine and Metallica in a nutshell. (laughs) You're welcome. <laughs> Brought up to modern day standards. There you go. There you go. Oh my God. <clears throat> but they realized Dave was a legit musician with a good deal of experience under his belt, and they really wanted to work with him. 
But David was a little wary at first. He was fresh out of high school and had to start college classes in a couple months. But the opportunity was too good to pass up. He never made it to those college classes. Instead, he, Dave, and Greg decided to form a band and added on friends Laura Kane on vocals and DeJohn Carruthers on drums. At first, they were still called Fallen Angels, but Lore suggested they change it to Megadeth after the song Dave had written by the same name, which was orig- which would end up being set the, wor- set the world set the world afire. Fire. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Words. That would be Lore's only contribution to the band since he left shortly after its inception. There were a bunch of lineup changes in the beginning. Lore left, and then DeJohn Carruthers was replaced after he apparently lied about his nationality, and both Daves decided they couldn't trust him. Uh, it's very strange, is- and I question it a lot, because apparently he was he had um, African-American lineage in him. Oh, okay. I, I assume he was a light-skinned black guy, but he tried to pass himself off or as maybe, like, Spanish? His parents were like I don't know. Mixed. I think he just probably didn't tell them that he was black. Okay. <laughs> and they assumed he was Spanish and then decided he lied about his nationality, so they kicked him out. I mean, but who cares? Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. But also, this seems to be a running thing with Dave Mustaine where he thinks bandmates lie to him. And therefore, that is a reason to kick them out of the band. It's not. Although I do understand why Dave thinks bandmates are lying to him. Dave, you want to go for a ride? Yeah, where are we going? <laughs> We're just going for a ride, man. It's fine. Why are we at the bus station? No reason, Dave. Just get on the bus, but Dave. get on the bus. Wait, are we all getting on the bus? N- no, no, Dave. It's just you. Wait, Here you what? go. What? Guys. Guys! Wait, no! No! <laughs> Oh my god, he's like a little puppy. Oh, oh poor oh, you're Dave. so sad. He's, he's sad just a little ginger poodle. He's just a little poodle. God damn it. Definitely a miniature poodle. <laughs> Even Carrie King played guitar for Megadeth for a few shows, but ultimately opted to leave to work with his own band, Slayer. Hell yeah. Lee Roush, who replaced DeJohn Carruthers on drums, also left after Dave made him play with a broken foot. Oh, which yeah, don't no. do that. That's Either one not of you, a thing. don't do that. Why? By December 1984, the final Megadeth lineup was set. After unsuccessfully trying to find a competent vocalist, Dave decided to take on vocal duties himself, along with guitar. David Ellefson, of course, was on bass, and they recruited Gar Samuelson on drums and Chris Poland for lead guitar. By 1985, Megadeth was signed to an independent record label called Combat Records, and were in the studio recording their first album, Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. Combat gave them $8,000 to record and tour. Which was a bad move on Combat's part. You don't just hand $8,000 over to a bunch of drug addicts. No. And they were drug addicts. Hey, what did they do with that money? Dave and David dove headfirst into the hard stuff. Coke, crack, meth, heroin, it didn't matter. If it got them high, they would do it. Woof. On top of that, they drank continuously. They were high and or drunk all of the time. Well, at a certain point when you're an alcoholic, like that level of alcoholic... You physically cannot function unless you are just drinking alcohol. Yeah, but they were they were more into the drugs. Oh yeah. Than 
Yeah. I just assumed, like, if they weren't high on drugs, then they had to be drunk to kind of just get by. They, yeah, they were mostly on drugs. and, And at this point, they had easy access to drugs. Oh, yeah. So they preferred to do drugs and they would only, they would still drink, but they only really drank when they didn't have access to drugs for some reason or another because you had to keep the high somehow and alcohol was the only easily accessible thing. So that's what you did. All right. I I guess. (laughs) I'm really, I'm just really accepting it. It's like, all right. We're we're not trying to normalize taking drugs here, but at this juncture of the story, to a drug addict, this makes sense. So naturally, they took half of the $8,000 the record company gave them and blew it all on booze, drugs, and food. Then they fired- Hey, at least there was some food in there. At least there was food. There's some nutritional value. They were all too skinny at this point. Oh, yeah. They fired the producer and did the production work themselves because they blew half of their budget on Mm. drugs and alcohol. Mm. And the drugs and alcohol, they'll be the producers. Yeah. And this probably wasn't the greatest idea because the production was the most criticized part of the album. It was described as weak and low quality. However, the music itself was pra- praised for being genre-defining. The biggest thing Dave wanted to accomplish with this album was to get revenge on Metallica. Yeah. He wanted to play harder and faster than any other band out there and give a giant middle finger, finger to James and Lars. Especially because Metallica had released Kill 'Em All in 1983, and its its success was a total blow to Dave's ego. They're gonna miss me when they hear this album. They're gonna realize They're what gonna they fucking lost. Exactly what they did. Megadeth accomplished that goal, playing songs with complex riffs at lightning speed. Some parts they do play fucking fast, ridiculously fast in their first first few albums. It's it's stupid. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost it's stupid, stupid how fast they play. Some parts were amateurish, including Dave's vocals, and it was criticized for having undeveloped compositions. But for the most part, critics critics and fans alike were really jizzing themselves over it. Yeah. I mean, it, was it has so that new. garage feel to it. It has, like, that DIY feel. And I think at that point, like, metal still, you wanted that. You wanted yeah. that real, like, raw... We fucking just made this ourselves kind of thing. And it was a pretty uh, big contrast to, like, glam metal that was coming out of L- exactly. L.A. at that time. Like, Motley Crue and... Um, Poison. And Poison and um, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Like, it was super glam and super cheesy. So this was the total antithesis of that. Right. If you needed... If, if you hated glam metal... This was exactly what you needed, yeah. even if the production quality wasn't up to snuff. To the point where every time they were asked what they thought of glam metal, they said, well, glam stands for gay L.A. music. So, uh, skeet, skeet. Y'all are real creative, aren't you? There you go. Yeah. What they weren't jizzing themselves over was the cover art, mm-hmm. which was so bad and so hilarious. I didn't believe it was the actual cover art. I don't know if you look... I should have shown it to you, but I don't know if you looked this up, but... Oh, you should look it up right now because it's sad. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. It's really bad. Oh, that's not great. It's pretty fucking terrible. That's like... Okay, so this is like a high school student's final photography project. Yeah, like, and they think they are being 
so deep right now. This is edgy. This is They're very so edgy. edgy. They're so deep. Oh yeah. man. The original cover art is a photo of a human skull with tinfoil shades on and metal hooks in its mouth sitting on a pile of chains chains if you look at it real quick like i did the first time <laughs> you might even think it's a clown's head oh i could see that it's ho- like from far yeah. away if you glance you know at what it, it like- kind of reminds me of um one of the posters or covers or whatever for killer clowns in space yes exactly 100 see that yeah oh no that's not what you want to do yeah. megadeth the artwork that dave submitted to combat was completely different than this sad amateur photo okay good what dave had submitted was a drawing similar to the 2002 re-release cover which features a much cooler looking skull and crossbones design it was a character that dave thought of that could be a mascot for the band much like eddie is for iron maiden you know i do have to say every time i look at a megadeth album like are you guys trying to do eddie kinda okay i mean that was the gist. Like, they wanted a mascot that was like okay, Eddie. Okay, okay. That's what I thought. You can totally get that vibe yeah. from that. But this guy is called Vic Rattlehead, and <laughs> arguably, he looked pretty badass. He's all right. He's, he's cool. no Eddie. He's no Eddie, no. But he's but, all right. Yeah. He's like Eddie's cousin. He's a little younger, and he's like, ooh, I'm trying. I like to think of him as Eddie's more, Eddie's younger and more socially conscious uh, cousin. Maybe. Something like, like that. He walks up and he's like, hey, Eddie, everybody says you're the guy, but I want to be the guy, too. And Eddie's all like, no way. You're just a kid. Maybe when you're older. And then Vic just whips it out and pees on him or something. Yeah, I maybe. Don't I don't know. Because I feel like that's probably what he would do. Probably. And then David Stane's like, stop. My art's real cool, guys. <laughs> this is exactly what I imagine this to look like. Because <laughs> that's how David Mustaine talks. All the time. No, that is... <laughs> no, he actually does have a surprisingly, like, calm... Almost... Eff- and I don't mean this as a dig. Effeminate voice. I don't know if it's necessarily effeminate, it's a, it's but... It's, like, very light and airy. Yeah. Very calming. I, you know, I, I should give, give Dave more credit. I talk... The, the Dave Mustaine voice that I use is obviously the Sweating Bullets voice. Yeah. But... He, when in interviews, he is very, um, he's a very he's eloquent, he's very eloquent, he's, he's well very spoken. articulate, and, yeah. um, he knows what the fuck he's talking about. And he, has a, he just has this very soft and airy kind of calm voice. I would listen to him, uh, read Yo, audiobooks he could all day. totally make some fucking ASMR videos. He should. God, I'd watch that. That's like would, my, that would put that's my late night guilty pleasure is ASMR videos. Hmm. <laughs> I would totally watch that. I haven't that. gotten on that yet, but maybe soon. Anyway, let's not talk about ASMR yes, anymore. Yes, Dave, Dave Mustaine. But Combat somehow lost Dave's drawing and scrambled to come up with oh my God. something. And <gasps> oh what they came no. up with was this fucking comical and hugely embarrassing thing for the band. Did they even see it before the fucking album went to print? I don't, they must not have. I don't think Combat told them. And then they they released the <gasps> album and they saw the, the the cover of it and they were like, what the fuck? Oh my God. That's a nightmare. That's an absolute nightmare. And fuck Combat if that's how it went down. Oh my God. Any sort of leg up Dave thought he had on Metallica because of the music he'd written was completely negated because of the laughable cover art. Yeah. 
It's also worth talking about the lyrical compositions on this album because it kind of comes into play later. A lot of the songs explore darker themes like death and the occult and human torture, leading a lot of people to speculate if Megadeth were Satanists. They didn't Mm -hmm. actually worship the devil, but they did like the concept of it for their songs. Okay. Also included in the original track listing was a cover of Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking, the head lyrics altered by Dave. Altered not for the benefit of the song or for Dave, but altered nonetheless. It wasn't until 10 years after Killing Is My Business was released that the original songwriter Lee Hazelwood objected to the lyric changes calling them vile and offensive. Took and de- you 10 years to get ten mad years. about that? Okay. And demanded the song be taken off the record. All right. Lee threatened legal action. So after 1995, all pressings of the album did not have the song on them. So if you have an album with that on it, that's probably worth something. You should something. keep it. Yeah, I'd hold on to that. When the album was re-released in 2002, a censored version of the song was included on it. Dave was critical of Lee's intentions for objecting so long after the album was released, as he claimed Lee was receiving royalties for the song the whole time. Oh, now I'm doubly like, come on, man. Yeah, there was no reason for that. Come on. Despite it being a metal album released on an independent label, Killing Is My Business did really well. It helped to define the thrash metal genre and garnered some major label interest. Megadeth would sign with Capitol Records in 1986, but before that happened, they went on a U.S.-Canadian tour in June 1985 to support their first release, opening for the band Exciter. During this tour, Chris Poland was basically forced to quit the band because he was thrown in jail for heroin possession. Ooh, not great. Yeah. Now let's take a second here to discuss the rampant drug use going on in this circle. Oh, we haven't already? We can discuss it more. Oh my. By now, Dave had been a hardcore drug addict for years. His main drugs of choice were coke and crack, but he didn't limit himself. I mean, like, go for the gold, baby. Yeah. And I can't even articulate just how much drugs these guys were taking. Every single day they were doing drugs and drinking to excess. And I truly do not know how Dave Mustaine functioned let alone is still alive, considering the sheer quantity of hard drugs he was putting into his body. It was insane. They were spending hundreds of dollars a day. Ooh, and this is like 80s money. So hundreds of dollars, thousands thousands of dollars now. Just imagine spending that much money. They're basically spending a month's worth of my earnings on drugs in a day. Yes. Yes. All of the money you would be using to pay all of your bills would go to drugs. What's that like? Yeah, what's that like? It's a weird thing to be jealous of, but yeah. here I am. <laughs> they wanted to be the most dangerous band on the planet, and they accomplished that. Dave and David were already into the hard stuff, but Chris and Gar were already heroin addicts. Ooh. And sadly, they introduced the two Daves to the drug. Gar actually said to Dave, if you want to be great, you have to do heroin. Which is... The most what? horrible advice you could give that somebody. Is, that is the fucking worst thing I've ever heard anyone say in my whole fucking life. My whole fucking rule has always been, I'm like, you know what? Like, people got to do what they got to do. I don't judge you for, like, I'm not going to kink shame you for what you do in the bedroom, consensually. I'm not going to judge, like, if you drink or you smoke or you, like, do cocaine. Like, mm-hmm. you do what you got to do. There are only two rules in my book, and it's heroin and meth. Those are, like, where you need to put, like, a hard no and fentanyl. 
I But like that's like you need to put a hard no on that shit. I put a hard no on Coke. You don't need to do Coke. There is no good reason to do Coke. Oh, I mean, like, I don't need to do Coke, and I'm not saying anyone needs to, but if they do, I'm not going to judge them. My bigger thing is, like, when you're injecting shit in your body, why? Yeah. And I mean, maybe I'm saying this because I hate needles, but, like, why? I Yeah. Why would you, why would you do that? Why I would you do that? Fuck these guys. That's the fucking worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Gar. What the fuck? What even name? What kind of name is Gar? Come we're, on. We're judging you real fucking hard. Fucking heroin. I can judge you. We get to judge you. <laughs> fucking judge jury executioners. Yeah. Soon enough, Dave and David were snorting heroin and doing speedballs, but oh, they weren't no. but they weren't yet injecting heroin. Uh, it's still not great. Still not still don't fucking do heroin. Still don't do heroin, guys. I don't care how you ingest it. Don't do heroin. Yeah, that's that's the big no-no right there, guys. By the time they went back into the studio to record their second album, their reputation for drug use and general insanity preceded them. It continued into early 1986 when the band was in the studio recording what would become P-Cells, but who's buying? Recording was difficult because of each band member's own addiction problems. Gar would be hours late for recording because he was buying and shooting heroin. Yeah, and usually after you shoot heroin, you're out of it for a couple hours. Yeah, you're on the floor in the bathroom. You're done. Got a needle in your arm. While Chris, when he bothered to show up, was shooting up in the bathroom. Both Dave and David were homeless at the time, so who knows where they would end up or if they could get to the studio. Jesus Christ! Yeah. It was a fucking. This is mess. only their second it was album. This is album two, guys. Like, eighty six. This is album two. This is nineteen eighty six, and already this is happening. Holy shit! All right, they were able to get their shit together enough to release Peace Cells on September nineteenth, nineteen eighty six, on Capitol Records. It was very well received and is considered one of the most important and influential thrash metal albums ever. It's pretty helping solid. define and popularize the genre. 1986 was a big year for Thrash, with Metallica's Master of Puppets and Slayer's Reign of Rain and Blood released the same year. I never realized how good of a year 86 was for Thrash. It was like the fucking year for these bands. Man. For, for the big four. Man. All right. It was so influential that MTV decided to co-op the bass line of the title track as its MTV News intro. Oh. Do, 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 do. Yeah. That's I didn't. That's that's a Metallica song. I never Metallica song. No, that's a Megadeth song. It's a Megadeth song. I knew what you meant. I was here for. Look, guys, we're a few beers in. We're going. We're going hard. We're going hard. Because I ain't done talking about Metallica either. Are we ever gonna be done talking about Metallica? I don't know. Home of rock. Welcome to Rock Candy. (laughs) Home of never being done talking about Metallica for some weird reason. MTV never asked Dave if it was okay to use his song, <gasps> opting instead to cut the track off at just the right moment so they wouldn't be contractually obligated to pay Megadeth any royalties. That's not a thing, by the way. That's what Dave said. It's not a thing. Was he- it a thing back then? Maybe. Could have been. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> no. Oh, Axl Rose, hi! <laughs> I didn't know you were here. <laughs> Axl Rose is always here. Axl Rose, everybody. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. Despite that, Megadeth became a mainstay on MTV, who were playing their videos on heavy rotation by now. 
The album went to a respectable 76 on the Billboard charts, but rampant drug use was preventing anyone from enjoying their success. The band members were constantly fighting, not just backstage, but on stage, too. Oh, no. Hitting each other with instruments and legitimately hurting each other. Oh, my God. It did nothing to dampen their reputation, but it also didn't help these guys move forward. That They're just kind of, like, hanging out in the same place. Yeah. That didn't stop Alice Cooper from inviting them to open for him on tour in February 1987. Ooh. The tour was almost a disaster. There wasn't a constant flow of heroin and coke for them to rely on. If the heroin wasn't there one day, then their shows would be shit. And their shows were shit a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Dave was taking so many drugs that he took on a Jekyll and Hyde persona One minute he was the nicest guy ever, and the next he was a murderous psycho. And Alice wasn't having it. He gave them a pretty stern warning that they'll sabotage themselves and their own careers if they didn't shapen up. They didn't listen, of course, and continued their drug-fueled insanity. Um, if you listen to anyone... Listen to Alice Cooper. Yup. Yeah, you listen to that man. He knows some things. He's seen some shit. Like, he's your fucking godfather. Yeah. I don't give a fuck who you are. When you're in rock, Alice Cooper is your fucking godfather. If he tells you to do shit... You, you do fucking it. do it. He also knows how to properly pronounce Milliwake. <laughs> Algonquin for the Great Land. Respect this man. Yes. Also, Gar and Chris were exhibiting behavior that Dave and David didn't agree with. Gar was so fucked up most of the time that they had a side drummer tour with them in case Car- Gar couldn't play a show. Oh. When Chris started pawning equipment to pay for heroin, the Daves had had enough, and at the end of the tour, fired both Gar and Chris. Woof. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a thing that happened. You don't pawn Dave Mustaine's shit. That's fair. You don't. For real. No, don't do it. He might be, you know, snorting heroin, but, but he'll don't, know when you're, don't his pawn his gone. shit. Don't pawn his shit. Chris was replaced with a guitar teacher named Jeff Young, and Gar was replaced by Chuck Baylor, the tour's backup drummer. Okay. That, yeah. They went back into the studio to record their third album, 1988, So Far, So Good, So What? Mm-hmm. Which was marred by problems from the get-go, mostly because of Dave's drug problems and clashing with their producer. But this was also when he found out that Cliff Burton had died. Ooh. And he was... Very hurt by that. Yeah. And there is a song on this album called In My Darkest Hour that's yep. actually about uh, Cliff. Yeah. Yeah, Cliff Burton dying, like, that just, I mean, obviously it would affect Dave because he knew yeah, him very well. Yeah, it did well, just but... affect the other three guys in Metallica. It yeah, affected like, a lot of people. I think it, that, that fucking sent ripples throughout, like, the metal community. Mm-hmm. The album did really well, and they landed a gig opening for Iron Maiden and were then set to play the Monsters of Rock European tour. But the tour would never happen for Megadeth. David David Ellefson was so sick from going in and out of withdrawal from the lack of constant drug flow while on the road that he felt forced to cancel their shows. Hmm. He basically announced to the world that he was a drug addict, and he flew back to L.A. to enter rehab. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Finally. All right. That's We're, good. Step in this the right direction. Right. Yes, yes. Good, good idea. Yeah. The two Daves were really close, basically partners in crime. So David going to rehab made Dave take a hard look at his own addictions, and he decided to go to rehab as well. Yeah. This would be the first of at least 17 times he would go to rehab or a detox program of some kind. 17. The face I'm making isn't 
proper for it a is podcast a, it format. It is a Steve Harvey face on crack. <laughs> is your face right now? Seriously, fuck. All right, seventeen. That's how a lot you, of times to go to rehab. How are you alive to go through rehab? Isn't he only times? in his fifties too? He was born in sixty one. So let me do math real Hold quick. Hold on, wait. He's fifty eight. Yes, he would be fifty eight. I did it. You did it. But there's a difference between these two best friends. Okay. While David came out of his rehab visit clean and sober and stayed that way for the rest of his life, oh, Dave Mustaine went straight back to using again. It made him feel alienated from his bandmates who were either clean or didn't use anywhere near as much as he did. You know what, though? Like, real quick, good on you, Dave Ellison. Yeah. You do it once like, and it's stuck. Wow. Which is what it's supposed one, to happen. One and done. One and done. That's, you know what? That is rare. Especially when you go Golf back, club. especially when you go back to a band where the leader of the band is so into doing heroin and shit like that. It could also be a matter of fact, too. Like sometimes when you're on the other side and you see somebody else and you're like, ooh, is that what I was like? It's like I don't a, like that. It's like a daily reminder of how you don't want to be. Right. So yeah. if anything, Dave might have served David as a reminder of yeah. what I don't want to do. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And also... He probably kind of felt obligated to, like, kind of babysit him mm-hmm. in a way like, oh, well, I'm the sober one now. I can look after him. If anything happens, I'll be there. You know, we'll be on the road together when he doesn't have anybody else. Right. So he's kind of like the police officer. <laughs> the drug oh police. God, he's the drug police. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to have an overdose, Steve. Let's get you to bed. <laughs> Jeez. But shit just got worse and worse. He re- Dave recorded a cover of Alice Cooper's No More Mr. Nice Guy for Wes Craven's movie Shocker. And he was so fucked up during the filming of the video that he couldn't even play guitar. <laughs> Director Penelope Spheris had, a f- had to film his guitar playing and his singing separately because he couldn't do both at the same time. Amazing. Yeah. Then he was arrested for a DUI after crashing into a parked vehicle occupied by an off-duty police officer. He said he had about nine different substances in him and seven different substances on him. His punishment was to go to court-ordered rehab and finally, finally, he became sober, even if it was for only a year. You know, though, that's, like, real good right now, though. A whole year. Like, that's real good. I mean, more than he's got, ask He's for. got 15 more times to go to rehab. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. I'm keeping tallies over here. Yeah. This was new territory for Dave, who had yet to record a Megadeth album sober. But that's exactly what he did when they went back into the studio to record Rust in Peace. Oh. Which is... A fucking masterpiece. That's why it's really good. It's so good. Because he actually had the clarity (laughs) to play his guitar correctly. (laughs) And write everything the way it should be written. That's amazing. Imagine what sobriety can do for you. Right? And I'm not even saying you got to always be sober, but like, try to be sober like 75% of the time. 75. Right? Like, that's not bad. I mean... 25% 25% of the time, that's the weekend. You can go crazy. That's what I'm saying. Like, business is business. Drinking's drinking. I mean, we're sober 75% of the time, I would say. Arguably, we are 65? not sober while we 65%. are doing our business, though. 
but part of our business is but not part being of sober. yeah that that is our business and business and is business good. is good oh! Oh! <laughs> fucking did it <laughs> fuck us drinking's our business fuck and us and business is good <laughs> oh my god <sighs> Before recording, though, both Jeff Young and Chuck Baylor were fired. Jeff was fired because Dave accused him of having an affair with his girlfriend, Diana, which oh, no. Jeff insisted wasn't true, but Dave fired him anyway. Wait, do we know if it was true or not? They both said it was, or Jeff said it was not true. I don't know Diana's uh, thing, but... Diana's not going to tell. I'm going to say no, because Dave and Diana were together for a long time, and she was the inspiration for a lot of the love songs that were on their albums hmm. up until now. So, I don't know. I'm going to give Diana the benefit of the doubt and say no. No, she didn't. There you go. That's it. They hired Marty Friedman on guitar and Nick Menza on drums and busted out Rust in Peace in 1990, which reached number 23 on the Billboard charts and went platinum. Now, Rust in Peace comes out in 1990. Yes. Uh, the Black Album comes out in 1991. Yes. And it's interesting because, so Rust in Peace, first time sober, first time that they're really doing like an actually very good job, like in trying. Yeah. Whereas, like, and it's funny because then you've got, like, but I feel like, and they're still going hard, they're still thrashy, they're still, like, really mm -hmm. in the metal scene, whereas a lot of people argue that the Black Album for Metallica... That was their turning point. Exactly. Where they started to kind of go mainstream and pop. Yeah. I still love the Black Album, but I'm just the saying it's an interesting really comparison great. between the two albums. Yes. Where they're both kind of at this turning point for both bands. Right. But, but in Megadeth, different ways. Yeah. Megadeth stays pretty true to the like thrash metal scene, whereas Metallica's like, we're still hard, but we're going hard in a different way because they could see where the they could see music the success was going. that they could achieve if they changed things a little bit. Right. And I think that's a big thing with Megadeth is where as Metallica went pretty commercial right. pretty quickly, Megadeth... I mean, they will try to do that a little bit, a little bit later, mm -hmm. which I'll get into. But they, for the most part, like 80% of the time, stayed really true to themselves and right. true to the genre and didn't try to go commercial so, so badly like Metallica did. Yeah. And, uh... I respect that. It's it's I think it's one of those things that in the moment might not have seemed like a good idea, but I think in retrospect it was paid off for them. They played the long game yes. in this. And that was a good choice. As much as I know Dave Mustaine didn't want to do that and that was not his intention. Right. Playing the long game was the better idea because they kept their dignity. Yeah. And despite how fucking bonkers they were with drugs and alcohol. When it came to the music, they kept their dignity more than Metallica did. You know what? They never released Saint Anger. They <laughs> as far as I know, Megadeth didn't try so hard to be a new metal band at some point in their life. Yeah. They tried to be a real pop, pop metal, pop commercial, but they quickly realized it did not work. Yeah. And course corrected real quick yeah but we'll get into that in a little bit yeah so this album rust in peace solidified them as metal beasts and garnered them the respect they deserve they desperately wanted and deserved yet somehow they were broke as fuck 
Do you think it was the drugs? They were still feeling the ripple effects of spending hundreds of dollars a day on drugs. Even still, things seemed to be going pretty good for the newly sober band. Their album was a hit, and they had their own world tour with Alice in Chains opening for them. David got married to his girlfriend Pamela in 1991, and in 1992 they had their first child, Justice. I believe their second child, Electra, was born in 98. Those are some names. Justice and Electra. Okay. However, their daughter is fucking gorgeous. Oh, I'm sure. She's beautiful. David Ellison's an attractive man. I don't know his wife, but I'm sure he married a babe, so I'm not surprised. Oh, I'm sorry. This was Dave, not David Oh, Ellison. you said David. I did, and I wrote that in my notes. I'm sorry. It was Dave Mustaine got married oh, to his okay. girlfriend, well, Pamela. Well, Dave is a cute man, and I'm sure his <laughs> wife is very gorgeous, because he's a musician, and you can she always is, date she up. She is gorgeous. Uh, so I'm not surprised. She probably has amazing hair. She has amazing cheekbones, too. Oh, damn cheekbones, though. I'm sure David Ellefson's wife is beautiful, too. Because, but... again, when you're a musician, you can always date up. Yes, you can. But, I mean, David Ellefson is a He is pretty, attractive. He's he is, a pretty good-looking good dude. He is a good-looking dude. Yeah. Not gonna lie. I'll give it to him. He, is, he doesn't have poodle hair, but he still has a nice mop. He does. He's very shiny blonde hair. Like, yes. I kind of just want to pet it. Like, mm, you shiny. You're like a My Little Pony up in here. <laughs> I just want to brush you with a I plastic kinda just brush. Wa- I kind of just want to brush him with a plastic brush. Yeah. It's fine. And kind of ironically, Dave became a correspondent for MTV covering the Democratic National Convention. We'll talk about this later. But it's really ironic. And it's pretty funny. You're, the face you're making is, again, Steve Harvey on crack. <laughs> I. Okay. They then went back into the studio to record their fifth album, Countdown to Extinction. Released in 1992, Countdown to Extinction was probably the most collaborative effort Megadeth put forth up until that point. It was a bit simpler than previous records and a little bit more commercial, but it's probably their most successful and most well-known album. Yeah, it's pretty tangible to any audience, I feel. With the help of singles like Sweating Bullets! Um, if you want the story on that song, listen to our Halloween playlist episode number 43, because it was one of my picks for a Halloween best Halloween It's a song. very good, I never thought of it until you said it. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's pick. It's very good. It debuted at number two on the Billboard charts and went double platinum. This is their, their album, that is. Yes. They wrote and recorded most of the album in a rehearsal space known as the Power Plant. If they ever got stuck when writing, they'd go outside to the basketball hoop set up in the parking lot. They'd shoot some hoops, and then Dave would get a magic burst of inspiration and spit out a great riff when they went back inside. So most of the album was written on a basketball court. Guys, I got a great idea for a song. It's about wanting to be like Mike. (laughs) Like Michael Jordan! Hey, guys. This fucking basketball game's killer. I'm sweating bullets out here. (laughs) Holy shit! (laughs) (laughs) Yes! That's it. Got it. We're going home. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. And that's Megadeth. That's Megadeth. Bye. (laughs) The success of Countdown to Extinction catapulted the band to popularity levels they hadn't seen before. Their videos were on heavy rotation on MTV, and they were headlining tours with huge names like Pantera and White Zombie as their supporting acts. They were finally starting to see some of that money they lost to their drug habits coming back to them. Oh, there you go. 
Finally, good things happening. But of course, Metallica would ruin it. God damn it, Metallica! Shortly after Countdown was released, Metallica's Black Album was also released and catapulted the band into mega fame. Yeah, that was a big fucking album. Like, nobody was beating that album. Mm -hmm. It eclipsed Megadeth and Dave's comparatively small success. Dave was devastated and pissed off and fuming that yet again Metallica showed him up. Oh my god, it's like when you see the Facebook of your ex and he just married this really, like, like, you think she's so pretty and then you see, like, she helps, like, endangered tigers and you're, like... like, makes $120,000 a year and they have a gorgeous house in, like, the best part of the town you live in. Yeah, I guess I I don't know where you live. But, like, yeah, and you're just like, oh, my God, I'm garbage. I'm the fucking worst. No one's ever going to love me. But, like, you have a mediocre boyfriend. Like, he's fine. He's very sweet. He gets the job done. He gets the job done. He's -hmm. very sweet, but he's not your ex. I have never pined for an ex like that, so. I don't know. I'm just basing this off (laughs) movies. This is what movies tell me, so it must be real. I don't know. I'm just basing this off of 100% stereotypes and Dave Mustaine. <laughs> Dave Mustaine is what I think Dave relationships Mustaine is are. a chick flick? He oh, is, no! though. He's just got a lot more drugs in it. Like a lot. Of, it's like a chick flick on heroin. Oh, literally on heroin. Literally on heroin. Oh, that sounds like the worst movie. I don't want to see that. It probably is. So Dave may not have been doing hard drugs, but he was still heavily drinking and actually incited a riot at a Eugene, Oregon show. Okay. He was a total mess on stage, rambling incoherently and, I assume, heckling people. The crowd broke the barricade and rushed the stage as the band was dragged away from the crowd. Oh, my God. Before anyone knew it, Dave swallowed a handful of Valium backstage. (gasps) Not a good combo when you're already shit-faced. No. He was rushed to the hospital where Dave claims he died shortly after arriving. He was resuscitated and recovered in the hospital, but right after being released, he was shipped off to the Meadows, a rehab center in Phoenix, Arizona. For his third stint or his fourth stint? That's his fourth, right? I don't don't know. I did not go through every single rehab stint so i'm not sure what number this is that's a lot of rehab yeah i i couldn't find information on every single rehab stint so this isn't the podcast for every single dave mustaine rehab stint every single time dave mustaine has gone into rehab that's not what we're talking about no i don't want to that is a boring ass fucking podcast it's a long one too You think this is long? Yeah. This brush with death woke Dave up a little bit. A little bit. Megadeth canceled their Japanese tour with Stone Temple Pilots to focus on Dave's recovery because they knew he'd be a goner if they continued to tour. Yeah. Dave attempted to change his habits after leaving rehab, asking the band to do group therapy sessions a la some kind of monster. It killed him to have to listen to his bandmates tell him he's a shithead, but he was doing what he had to do to stay sober. So that also included not tolerating any users in the band. He suspected drummer Nick Menza of being drunk and fired him in a fit of rage after Whoa. Nick refused to take a urine test. Well, wait, can you do a urine test for alcohol? I think so. Like, or at least a blood test. Yeah, I guess a blood test. I'm pretty sure you can detect alcohol in your urine. 
Don't quote me on that. I don't really know. I've never taken a urine test for fucking alcohol before. Just drugs. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, just carry a breathalyzer on you, bro. So that's, like, really a concern for well, you. Well, he probably would have refused to do that, too. But I'm just saying. Yeah. But they got the idea to do this because I think their therapist was also Aerosmith's therapist. Did he carry banana stickers? He was not Dr. Twinkletitz <laughs> from, from Metalocalypse. Yeah, they got they actually got it from Aerosmith because Aerosmith did something similar when their manager suggested they do random drug testing to make sure that Joe Perry and Steven Tyler stayed off fucking drugs f- f- fucking for once. Yeah, because I imagine if either of one of them did drugs again, they're dead. They're never going to die. They're not. Anyway! Yes. (laughs) Before long, Dave himself was off the wagon and back to using drugs and drinking again. But an opportunity... (laughs) Yep. Okay, yep. Yep. All right, this checks out. Not surprised. All right. But an opportunity came up that he couldn't refuse, playing a handful of European dates with Metallica. Ooh. The shows were hugely successful and served as an olive branch of sorts between Dave and Metallica. Okay. Although Dave was hugely critical of Kirk Hammett, who took his place in the band. Out of everyone that you want to be critical about. He is about, the nicest man ever. And very talented. Like, they're all talented. But, like, Kirk's just like, I just want to play my fucking yeah. guitar. And, like, surf. And, like, and surf. Like, cool. I'm not here to start a fucking fight. And I get it that he took your place. But if you're going to fucking throw a hissy fit with anybody, can it just be Lars? Because Lars deserves it. Yeah. And like a Kirk little bit doesn't. James. Kirk didn't do shit. Kirk didn't do he shit. He didn't know what he walked into. And you can bet your sweet candy ass that like James and Lars never told Kirk like, so I have this crazy ex. He's a little much. He gets a little jealous. He posts some things. But you know, just ignore him and he won't bother you. It's he, fine. He has his own band and he should be fine with that, but sometimes he just really bugs Sometimes me. he just gets really drunk and then he calls and he yells at me. Just ignore it. Just ignore him. Just, just ignore, ignore him. He'll go away. <laughs> that's and that's Metallica's side of this breakup. <laughs> Hooey. Aww. But the whole experience ended up being kind of cathartic and allowed him to start moving on. Sort of. Maybe. Sort of. Kind of. The experience also came at a price. Dave started pushing most of his friends and family away and continued the downward spiral of drug use. No one seemed to be able to get through to Dave how badly he needed help and solidly sober David, Dave's best friend and right-hand man, couldn't help him either. As David said, you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. It's true. And things got even worse. Right before recording their next album, 1994's Euthanasia, Dave started shooting heroin. Oh no, that's the worst! That's that's the worst. (laughs) This was a step too far for his friends and family who held an intervention in November 1995. He put up resistance, but insisted he would go as long as he could shoot up one more time. (sighs) Okay! Famous last words. Just one more time, man. Just one more time and I'll go. No, no one allowed him to, which was for the best. He said if he was allowed to go shoot up, it definitely would have been for the last time because he probably would have overdosed and died. Yeah. This was, this was the 15th time he was getting sober. Holy And this was 1995. In nine years. Yeah. 
in nine years. Fifteen times. That's like at least twice a year. Almost. Almost twice a year. He went to rehab. That's too many times. Mm -hmm. That is too many times to go to rehab. Yeah. His 15th time getting sober. He was entered into a rehab center in L.A. for six weeks, and he finally kicked his drug habit for good. Okay. Now that both Daves were clean and sober, they were back on the same musical page. They went back into the studio to record a new album. They worked closely with their new manager, Bud Prager, who contributed a lot to the album, including lyrics and song title changes. They also worked with producer Dan Huff, who seemed like an odd choice considering he was known for working with pop country artists. Mm. What resulted was cryptic writings. And I actually really like cryptic writings. Cryptic writings is really, really good. Really, really good. But it is. It's very good. You can feel how it's very comprehensive. It is a very logical step in their Mm -hmm. growth. It feels so much mature than their other albums. And you can tell Dave just got clean. Yeah. Like, those songs, out of all of the albums, that I feel like is probably the most I Just Got Clean album that they have. Yeah, it's the most relatable content, I think. Like, a lot of their previous albums had a lot to do with politics and environment and stuff like that, which is great. Like, I related to a lot of what they were saying, but... Cryptic Writings has a lot to do with, like, relationships and trust yes. issues and, you know, really he personal He definitely things. has a song about shooting up, too. Um, I forgot which uh, one it was. Use the Man. Yeah. Yeah, Use the Man. Very, like, obviously about his heroin use. Yes. Um, and it, it 100% is because he, there was this old proverb that he, that he, a Chinese proverb or something that he reinterpreted as, you know, you know, the needle... Or the man uses the needle, but the needle is actually using the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So that makes sense. Yeah. It's no, introspective, which it's... is not something he really did all that much before. And so, hold on. I'm sorry. Um, Before you continue. So let's go back. This is 97, I think. 96, 97. I know it was like later, ni- later 90s. Mid to later 90s. Yeah, it was like 98. 97, 98. So this is when was doing like load and reload. Yep. So, which is in the graphic view of, like, where Metallica and Megadeth are going. Like, Megadeth's kind of, like, steady. Metallica's rising. Megadeth's still, like, steady. And then, like, Megadeth rises a little. Metallica's kind of, like, rising more. But then Megadeth rises more. And then Metallica kind of wants to (laughs) crash and burn for, like, the next (laughs) ten years. Yeah, basically. Like, it's so funny to take this album... And compare it to Load and Reload. Like I, I stand by it. Like Load and Reload does have hand a handful of songs on mm-hmm. both of them. Where I'm like, this, this is fine. Mm-hmm. But like nobody fucking asked for this. <laughs> first of all, Metallica. And I feel like nobody asked you to do nobody this. Nobody asked you to do fucking country blues. I, it's fine, and I'm down. I actually do like is some it fine? of it. I, I like some of it, but also nobody asked for it. Yeah, I see both sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. But then you have Megadeth, where it's like you have cryptic writings and. It is more mature, but in a good way. Like, it's what Metallica wishes they fucking did. It's what Metallica did with the Black Album, but they didn't keep yeah. that up. Yeah, then yeah, they yeah. were like, let's just be crazy and different weird, in which I can respect in a band. Like, you should be able to experiment, but at the same time, nobody asked for this. But I think the big difference here is that um, once Metallica got that taste of popularity... And they want to hold on to that. They wanted to hold on to it, and they went too far with it. Yeah. They just... Dignity just went fucking out, throw it out with with 
baby with bathwater. Yeah. Well, and- just throw it out and who the fuck gives a shit? Yeah. You know what? We want to make money. Yeah. I'm sorry. And, and I'm coming from as like somebody who like, grew up fucking loving Metallica. Yeah. They wanted that paycheck. Mm-hmm. They wanted to experiment. And I think you were more than allowed to, but they wanted that paycheck too. And what I and what I can say about cryptic writings too is that I feel like it's very genuine. Mm-hmm. Listening all the way through cryptic writings, very genuine, very much like a reflection on what the band has been going through, even though there is wheels on the bus <laughs> on it. That's so cute, though. It is pretty cute. Listening to Dave Mustaine saying the wheels on the bus go, go round, round and round. round. That's pretty fucking funny. Pretty fucking and it's hilarious. adorable. But yeah, it's it this to compare because Dave Mustaine has spent most of his life life comparing himself to Metallica. I feel the need to do it as well, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is where Megadeth one hundred percent succeeds and Metallica totally failed. It's what Metallica should have tried to do, yeah. But instead of restraining themselves a little bit, which I think uh, Megadeth did. Yeah. On cryptic writings, they wanted to go a little bit more commercial, but they restrained themselves because they knew, I I think they probably knew it wasn't going to be that well received. Right. Whereas they restrained themselves, Metallica just went like fucking balls to the wall and what? really, you know, nosedived right. because of it. And I think that's more accurate with their next album, which was technically James's rehab album, Saint Anger. Yeah. They fucking went balls to walls with and they did everything except for guitar solos. And they they actually did a very similar concept to like cryptic writings where everybody had a part and everybody had a say, everybody's sober mm-hmm. and like everybody's going through shit. But it didn't work. But, for but them. it didn't work. Because Saint Anger's garbage. And I think I don't think that any of them really had the um, relationship that Dave and David had, right? Either I think at that point, like, I mean, and Metallica was on the verge of breaking up. They lost Jason. Yeah, they didn't have a basis. Yeah, they had Bob Rock to try to hold it together, but they didn't even really. He fucking was like producer. Bob Rock at that like, yeah, point. Well, he did. played bass. Yeah, but he was technically their producer. He wasn't yeah. a member of the band, and then yeah. they got pissed off when he tried to be a member of the band. And it's like, well, what are you trying to do? Like. Megadeth did it right because they took care of their shit and then went into the studio, whereas Metallica didn't take care of their shit. And they tried took care to of it. take care of it in the studio, which exactly. was so wrong. That is no, that's not how you do it. This is an amazing comparison, actually. If you listen to Cryptic Writings and Saint Anger and you see a band that did their their personal shit right and a band that did their personal shit wrong. However, some kind of monster yeah. was the fucking funniest thing in the <laughs> but world. But we did get I, some kind of monster I out of it. I will not change a fucking step Metallica yeah. did if it yeah. means I can't get some kind of monster out of it. And the and the funny thing is, is that, you know, we, we're comparing these two albums and it's like Megadeth's album was clearly they did everything right and they yeah. should. And this is what Metallica should have done. But people were still very critical of cryptic writing. Which is insane because it's such a good album and it's just, it goes to fucking show you how much like music critics, the Grammys, fucking these elite motherfuckers in the music world don't fucking know shit. No, they just flap their pie holes and think they know what they're talking about. Right, because it's Metallica and they put out the Black Album five years ago. Like, who gives a fuck? Like, this is a great album by Megadeth. Yeah. And this 
this is like, you can see their growth. You can 100% tell how hard they've worked and like the personal place that they're coming from and how genuine it is. And you're still not going to give them their due. And on top of that, euthanasia and rest in peace and um, countdown to extinction were all fucking amazing. Yeah, they're all great. Metallica didn't have that history coming into St. Anger. They had two big old flops that nobody really liked that much. Right. So if Megadeth wants to be a little bit more commercial and have a little bit more melody in their music, they're fucking allowed to. Yeah. Because it's still really good. It's And it's still thrash. Yes. If you yes, want to put is. that shit side by side next to fucking load and reload. Yeah, no. I think one of them's definitely still metal and one of them stopped being metal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, I don't think I like Metallica that much anymore. You're now a Megadeth girl. I'm Congratulations. Not a- All right. I guess I'm just I just I don't know anymore. My god. Given another few months, you'll be a Megadeth girl for sure. All right. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, that was a tangent I felt like needed to be had though. Oh yeah. It was a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> we feel you, Dave. <laughs> Cryptic Writings peaked at number 10 on the charts and its lead single, Trust, went to number five. The reason I like this album more than others is because it's for the same reasons people didn't like it. It was less thrash and more accessible, less riff heavy and more melodic. And yeah, it's a bit more commercial, but it's still a really solid album. Also, I really like on the deluxe version, they have Trust in Spanish and it sounds so good. It sounds like he's summoning the devil and I love it. Yeah, that's kind of great. Naturally, a tour commenced, but halfway through the tour, something was wrong with their drummer. They were halfway through the OzFest 98 tour when Nick Menza discovered a tumor on his knee. Oh, no. He left briefly to have surgery, and during the surgery, doctors discovered the tumor was benign. He tried to come back to his job, but Dave ended up firing him, believing he lied about having cancer. Do you see the trends? So Dave doesn't know how to trust people. No. Huh. He wrote a whole song about it. It's called (laughs) Trust. (laughs) That's why I like the Spanish version better. It just sounds like he's summoning the devil. Yeah, yeah. While critics and fans weren't exactly sold on cryptic writings, they were pretty much outright hated Megadeth's next album, Risk. It was aptly named because the risks taken on this album didn't really pay off. Mm. Risk was even more mainstream than cryptic writings, and the fans were not enthused. It was too far away from their heavy metal sound, and there was a huge backlash over it. And Risk was a pretty big failure. This led to Marty Friedman leaving the band, unhappy with the direction the band was going. He was replaced with Al Petrelli, who was basically baptized by fire after only getting 15 minutes to warm up before his first show with the band. Okay. But he was a professional. He knew what he was doing. He took his shit. Mm -hmm. He knew what's up. Petrelli would be the only other member of the band besides Dave Mustaine to contribute to their next album, The World Needs a Hero. Dave fired manager Bud Prager and wrote almost all the songs and produced everything himself. It was a return to their roots of sorts, shooing away the commercialism of Risk and getting back to their early thrash days. Nice. It was released in 2001 and charted at number 16, and while most critics liked it, they still criticized it for not being metal enough. Because it's never enough! Or it's too metal. Pick one. Um, Just fucking pick one. How about go fuck yourselves, critics? I don't like critics. They're stupid. Yeah. I'm drunk, but they're stupid. (laughs) They sit out on tour anyway, playing shows with Iced Earth and Endo. But the tour was cut short because of the 9-11 attacks. 
Probably for the better, though, because Dave ended up hospitalized for kidney stones. He was given pain medication, which caused him to relapse, and this set off a weird chain of events. He voluntarily checked himself into a rehab center in Texas, where he once again became sober. Okay. While there- Because it's just alcohol at this point with Dave, right? No, it was prescription pills for his kidney stones. Oh. Okay. While he was there, he suffered a strange but devastating injury. He was sitting in a chair with his left arm over his head over the back of the chair. He somehow fell asleep that way, which crushed his radial nerve. What? He was diagnosed with radial, radial neuropathy, basically severe nerve damage that was so bad he could barely grasp anything, let alone play guitar. He went through four months of physical therapy and had to reteach his hand how to play guitar. What? Yeah. It was grueling. And so on April 3rd, 2002, he announced that he was officially disbanding Megadeth on account of his injury. I mean, all right. You know, and like uh, Jason Newstead of Metallica, once again, comparisons, mm-hmm. comparisons abound. He Did had something a, similar happen he, to him? It, it, he didn't like do the same thing as Dave Mustaine, but he definitely had a shoulder injury that oh. made it so he couldn't play bass for a couple years. Yeah. And that's why he took a painting. But yeah, yeah. like... Uh, Getting old sucks, guys. It does. Like, we're on, we're right on the precipice of, like, like, my knees are fucked. Like, I'm just waiting for the day when I just, like, get out of my car wrong. And I'm like, well, there goes my fucking knee. Yeah. And at this point, he's in his 40s. Yeah. So, like, that's what I mean is it's just, like, all right. I, but I, I feel also you, Dave. Get it, but I, I also under- get it. I understand. I totally get it. Yeah. But there is more to their breakup than that. He was resentful of David for wanting to include songs he'd written on their albums. <laughs> Which is so Wait, silly. Dave was like, David, you don't get to have songs on these albums. Yeah, you're just the bassist. Oh, Even though okay. you've been the only other consistent member of this band. And basically like have me. gotten me through the last 20 years of my life, but yeah. sure. Yeah. Al was drinking too much, according to Dave, and wanted to spend too much time with his family. And their newest drummer, Jimmy DeGrasso, was too negative and hard to be around with his complaining about money and wanting things. Stop it! I fucking can't! You're the most... Like, just when you want to root for Dave Estate, he fucking just acts like this. And you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Meanwhile, Dave felt free to explore other avenues, and that included religion. Hmm. Around this time, Dave became a born-again Christian. He denounced the music Megadeth had written that involved the occult and referenced Satan and whatnot, Mm -hmm. vowing never to play them again. He also refused to play any show that involved bands he deemed satanic. He calmed down more in recent years, but he's and he's realized he he doesn't need to be that hardcore about his stances on playing with other bands that reference Satanism and stuff. But at that time, he was a bit of a pain about it and insufferable. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. When somebody gets on a new kick, no matter what it be, they can be a little bit, oh, I don't know, extra on their new kick. Like, whether it be, it could be religion. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, hey, Jesus. Or or it could be even like a new diet. Like, oh, you know, like, have you tried avocados instead of vinegar? Especially with born agains. They get really overzealous about shit a lot. Yeah. A lot, Yeah, a lot. no, they, they, they do. Ooh-wee. Yeah. Somebody who finds religion later in their life, they're like, hey, did you guys hear about this God thing? And you're like, yeah. Yeah. 
Let me tell you all about it. It's you fucking don't great. You have to. I spent the first 18 years of my life in it. Yeah. I oh. can tell you about all the things that are wrong with it. In fact, I, I might probably know more about the Bible than you do, <laughs> but sure, go ahead. Tell yeah. me. David Ellison also came back around to Christianity as he got older. He apparently had some strange incidents while working in the studio that made him think God was calling him back to the church. Oh. He also wanted his kids to grow up in a church-going family, so he and his wife became born-agains as well. Okay. He even started his own ministry services. What? Yeah. He started his own ministry services in Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay. I mean, like... They're I mean... called Mega Ministry Services. Like I hate it, but I love it. Is that is that have I? I've never been more torn in my life. I hate I it and I love it. Yeah, but Dave and David wouldn't be this united Christian Megadeth for many many years. After Megadeth broke up, Dave was supposed to continue on with a solo career. He started writing and recording. The system has failed, but because of contractual obligations with his publishing company, he had to release it under Megadeth's name. Right. Dave invited David back to record bass parts for the album, but apparently it wasn't financially viable for David to do so, so he ultimately declined the invitation. Hmm. Dave released the album under the Megadeth name anyway, which resulted in David Ellison suing Dave Mustaine Whoa. for royalties and rights to Megadeth's back catalog. Oh my god. He sued for $18.5 million, what? but lost the suit in the end. Yeah, I mean... That's a lot. That's a lot. That seemed to be the end of the line for David Ellison's career in Megadeth. Dave continued on, releasing three more Megadeth albums without David. Meanwhile, David kept busy with his ministry, along with other musical projects like F5 and a tribute band called Hail. Was it a tribute band to Megadeth? Because, like, that'd be That's really like funny. That's, like, the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> like, you hit rock bottom when you're in a tribute <laughs> band for your band. own band. Oh, my God, yes. Don't do not do that, David Ellison. Please you're better don't. than that. It would be eight years before David rejoined Megadeth, putting his own piece back into the puzzle. In 2010, Megadeth's drummer Sean Drover sent David a text that said, if ever there was a time for you and Dave to talk, now is it. So they talked on the phone, and it was like the eight, last eight years melted away, and they were Biffles again. Oh, that's really sweet. I just picture both of them like on their phones, like laying on their tummies, with, like their <laughs> phones and their elbows. Do some and girl talk. And they're like curling the little wires. They're like, oh, Dave, how are you doing? Oh, David, I'm so good. But they're oh. see-through phones. Right? And it's like... How's Metallica? And Dave's like, I don't even talk to them anymore. Like, whatever. I don't even care. I don't even need them. I don't even know. Like, I mean, I think they have a new bassist or something. I don't even care. (laughs) I mean, I was on that some kind of monster thing, but like, it didn't even help. It was so stupid. It was so stupid. Lars is such a jerk. Did you know Lars is a jerk? Yes. Yes, I did. Everyone knew Lars is a jerk. They have since released three more albums, the most recent of which, Dystopia, finally. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. After 12 nominations, won them a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. They were the Susan Lucci of the metal genre. But, like, seriously, though. Yeah. It's about fucking time. Yeah. Like and you, Dystopia's not bad. on that. No, it's a good album. It's pretty good. It's good. And the Dave we have now in 2019 is a much mellower soul. 
He's not the angry, angsty teenager he was when he started Megadeth, whose sole purpose in life was to get revenge on Metallica. And actually, I would say he did get revenge on Metallica. Because according to a lot of their fans, Metallica hardcore sold out and made a lot of unredeemable, unredeemable mistakes. But Megadeth, for the most part, didn't have too many missteps and probably kept a lot of their credibility. Yeah, I mean, maybe they never got as big as Metallica, but they never got shit. Like, there are so many people I know, so many of you listening right now, who will never forgive them for Napster. And, like, I get it. That's fine. That's fine. But, like, Megadeth didn't do that. Right. There are a lot of people who fucking can't even, like, utter the words St. Anger. Without Megadeth. getting angry. Ha. Megadeth didn't do that. You know what? I love Lou Reed, but they didn't do a collaboration Ooh. with Lou Reed that is rough at I best. I mean, apparently uh, Dave's, he tried to do like this symphonic thing like like Metallica yes. did and it was not well received. Which sucks because I, I love me a symphonic and I will say Metallica's going to do another s and and I'm here for it because mm-hmm. I do. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing though. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to perform with an orchestra, I'm like, all right, I'm here for it. Yeah. Sucker. Like that's how you get me. However, um, yeah. And you know what? Like I haven't seen Megadeth live. Mm-hmm. I'd probably like to change that. Mm-hmm. But the last time I saw Metallica live, um, they forgot lyrics in some of their songs. Right. And had to take how many breaks? A lot of breaks. Yeah. I don't know what Megadeth sets are like, but... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Dave Mustaine doesn't take that many breaks. I feel like as a Metallica fan, being their... F- like. <sighs> Being their fan for so long at this point, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. And I feel like Meg- people who went with Megadeth as opposed to Metallica maybe don't have as much disappointment to have to account for as I yeah. do. <laughs> so you know what, Dave? I think you won. Yeah. I'm going to say it took a long time, but you played the long game and I think you came out on top in the end. Agreed. Because I think um, you're going to have... A whole lot more respect. Also, like, I find you, like, charmingly ridiculous. Whereas, like, and, Lars Ulrich's just an asshole. And aggravatingly endearing. Yes. You know? Yes. Aggravatingly endearing, aggravatingly I think, is endearing. a pretty good descriptor of Dave Mustaine now. Yeah. In 2019. Yeah. Um, even now that they're born-again Christians, Dave and David both aren't preachy about it. Good. For the most part. Dave is still pretty outspoken about his political views and often guests on Fox News shows. But oh, is that why it's ironic that he fucking went to the Democratic National yes. Convention? Oh, yes. Oh. Yes, yes. Huh. But even the clips I've seen of him on Fox News, he's still relatable. I don't particularly align with his views, but he comes across as the kind of guy I could have a civil debate with right. and not have it reduced to a screaming match. Again, he is fairly eloquent. Yes. He knows he's, what he's talking about. He thinks but, about what he's saying. But also, I, I still question some shit because he's a total conspiracy theorist. Oh, yeah. He thinks Obama was behind the Aurora movie theater shooting and the Wisconsin Chic Temple shooting. Uh, and he also voiced support for Rick Santorum in 2012. So there's some questions that I still have. Regarding that, but I'm not going to poke the bear. But they make some great music, though, don't they? They do. 
<laughs> and this is another, you know, can you separate the art from the artist? In this kind situation, of I one hundred percent can. I can. 100%. Definitely. Like this is not this is a no contest. Yeah. Definitely. No problem. I don't think he's done anything super egregious outside of his own personal life. Right. And I think that's the big thing is like when you Yeah, you fucked up your own personal life, like roll bad, but you're you're trying. But you know what? Props to Pam, because she's still with him. They got married in 91, and they are still together. Guys, give it up for Pro- Pam. Give it up for Pam. Give it Cla- up. Claps for Pam. Claps for Pam. She's, she's tops. She's, yeah. She's a good lady. Pam, you tops, girl. <laughs> Never going to hear this, but I want you to know, we support you. If there's anyone who wins in this story. It's Pam. It's Pam. <laughs> give it up for Pam. Pam, everybody. Pam. Everybody, Pam. Pam. Wow. This was a long one, and thank you all for sitting through it. <laughs> and I left out so much. We did leave out a little bit, but I mean, but you I know think what? you guys have the good general gist of the Megadeth story. Yeah, and if if there, when, where there are holes in the Megadeth Metallica story, just go back and listen to our two Metallica episodes, 19 and 20, Yeah, and they will be filled in. Yeah. We definitely have when Dave Mustaine comes back in for some kind of monster. Yes. Which is delightful. Yes. Oh, Dave. <laughs> Dave. Actually, you know what? Just YouTube Dave and Lars Ulrich, and it's wonderful in that it's ridiculous. Oh, my but, God. Um, yeah. I'm really glad I got to talk about Dave Mustaine because I, I love the guy. Yeah. Like, I love like him. you said, what was it? Um, Frustratingly. Oh, uh, aggravatingly endearing. Aggra- he is really <laughs> aggravatingly endearing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Sentiment 100%. And you know, I'm I'm glad that he after 17 tries, he came out on the good side of uh sobriety. Sobriety. I'm glad he's not dead. Me honestly, too. Just glad and he's honestly, not dead. And honestly, I hope that those drugs preserved him in some way. And he will continue to grace us with his presence for a long time. Yeah. Because I'm here for it. Yeah. I'm here. For, we're here for you, Megadeth. We're here yeah. for you. And uh, we're glad you guys were here for us for a extra long episode. But, you know. It's worth you it. Guys, it is worth it. Dave for, is worth it. Yeah. I think. Uh, I hope Both our, Daves are worth it. Yeah. The Daves are worth it. Megadeth's worth it. And uh, learning that I don't think I like Metallica that much anymore, I guess, is worth it. I don't think we can justify Metallica anymore. I can't. I can't defend I them. Don't, I didn't really try to in the first place. I'll defend Kirk and Rob, but that's like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bob Rock. I will always <laughs> defend you, Bob Rock. And his fucking horrible dragon shirts. But that hair. <laughs> you know what? We're always here for you if you got good hair. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Good hair. Welcome to Rock Kitty, home of the good hair. The good, good hair. The good, good hair. Oh, my God. All right. Well, so thank you guys for listening. Love you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. If you are enjoying yourselves, like what you're hearing, if you were like, wow, you guys did a really good job with Megadeth, you should let us know by leaving us five stars on iTunes and a great review. You you better, because... My notes were extensive. Those were extensive ass notes. I looked at them. They were intimidating. <laughs> Girl took off her rings for this episode. I did. <laughs> and even if you don't have the iTunes, but you want to just give us a nice follow, we've got all the social medias. We have Twitter at Rock Candy Pod and Facebook and Instagram at Rock Candy Podcast. You can always just comment on our shit or drop us some DMs. 
We're always here to talk. You got any corrections for us? And you're like, hey, but you guys messed up on this. And we're like, oh, I'm sorry about that. You should tell us because we're not perfect. We're, we're trying, though. Ooh-ee. I'll resent you for a hot second, but then I'll be like, but you're right. <laughs> I'll be like, ooh, but they right, though. But you're right. And uh, next week, we got another episode coming at you. It'll be interesting. It's <laughs> Oh, It might be boy. another one where I need to drink um, a lot. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of hot takes on the next yeah. one. Yeah, we are. Yeah. This was... Next week is basically a fan uh, suggestion. It is. But so, we'll, we'll get into that next week. Not ours. You can you can <laughs> you can wait one for that. Yep. Um man, yeah. And until then, uh sit your asses tight and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Party on, Ashley. Party on. And uh balls out. Thank you.